Palm Sunday, the day that began the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and a day for the people that was filled with a lot of patriotic, nationalistic themes. For example, as was illustrated in the action of the children this morning, that was a time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt and was greeted with people waving their palm branches. Why palm branches? Well, that was their national symbol, which appeared on their coins. So the image I have in mind is myself, maybe as a child attending 4th of July parades, people lining the streets. And as floats came by, they would oftentimes wave a little American flag. Well, the people in Jerusalem weren't waving flags, but they were waving palm branches, their national symbol. And at the same time, they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, an Aramaic word that means save us now, save us now. So national symbol, save us now, quoting scripture from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel, referring to Jesus as their king, national symbol, save us now, Jesus, you're the king. A psalm that was quoted some 100 years prior to this by the crowds in Jerusalem as they welcomed back their national hero, Simon Maccabeus, after he had driven out the enemy, the Syrian forces, and had set the people free. So put all of this together, and are you getting an idea what Palm Sunday was all about? For these people, again, it was filled with a lot of nationalism and patriotic thinking, believing that Jesus would be their earthly king, their ruler, who would come in, drive out the enemy, the occupying force of Rome, and set them free. They could not have been more mistaken is Jesus the Messiah? Well, of course he is, which is why he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt in fulfillment of scripture. But he comes with a very different kind of mission in mind. And we're going to talk about aspects of that mission this morning as we fast forward the story from Sunday, Palm Sunday, to Friday, what we oftentimes call Good Friday, the events recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 12, Palm Sunday, to the events found in the last portion of John, chapter 19. So as we come to this passage of scripture, we find that Jesus is on a cross and he's already dead. 152,000 people in our world will die today. That's the average. Same number tomorrow, day after that. 55.3 million people in our world die every single year. And so every person's death, particularly when we show up for a funeral memorial service, is a reminder that our turn is coming. And we're oftentimes left with questions like, what if anything lies beyond? Is there life after death? And when a loved one dies, we're often left asking the question, oh my, now what? What do I do? Where do I go? How do I even cope? And so we like to know, can death 
be conquered? Is there a way to escape the fear of it and to overcome it? The passage we're going to look at today, I think, is an exciting, thrilling record of Jesus' power over death while dead. Yeah, that's right. Jesus' power and control over death while he's in a state of death. Now, Jesus then can do what no one else has been able to do, and that is to uh, control and conquer death. And the wonderful part of all of that is this, that what he did for himself, he promises to do for all of those who by faith are connected to him. And so by dying, Jesus conquered death, including the fear of it, and turned it into that which can usher us as his followers into his very presence for eternity. So here in this passage we're looking at this morning, we see Jesus' power and control over death in two areas, and that's what I want to talk about. So if you have your sermon notes, uh, you'll notice on the, the inside there that these two areas are listed for us. First of all, we see his power and control over death in his dying. Oftentimes what terrifies us about death is its unexpected character. We don't know when or why or how or under what circumstances it's going to happen to us. And so it oftentimes comes to us unannounced. And it leaves words unsaid and plans unfinished and dreams unfulfilled and, and hopes unrealized. But Jesus had no fear of death because he conquered it. And I want you to see this morning the evidence for that in this passage. First of all, Look at what happened the exact moment that Jesus died. Verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said one word in Greek to telestai. It means, as it's translated here, it is finished or done, completed, accomplished. Everything has been accomplished now for our redemption. With that, we're told he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No last gasp. No look of terror in his eyes like what's going to happen now. Instead, in full control, he gave up his spirit. Now Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus died at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon after being on the cross for six hours. It was somewhat unusual for victims of crucifixion to die so quickly. Bible even tells us in Mark chapter 15 that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Two thieves crucified alongside of Jesus were still very much alive. You say, okay, well, I don't know, maybe Jesus died more quickly because after all, he was beaten, he was scourged. They took this whip that had pieces of metal and bone sewn onto the ends of the leather strips and and use that to uh, flog him. Yeah, but more than likely the same thing, same treatment happened to the others. That was oftentimes a standard treatment before crucifixion. Okay, maybe then Jesus died more quickly because he was physically weaker. Could that be the answer? Well, the fact that Jesus was engaged as a carpenter prior to the start of his ministry, and by the way, the original word translated carpenter can be translated stonemason, suggesting either way that Jesus was engaged in 
in an occupation that certainly required a great deal of physical strength. And then when he launched his public ministry, the fact that Jesus could traverse very difficult terrain and for that matter be teaching oftentimes all day long, performing a lot of miracles, the fact that Jesus could do all of those things certainly suggests he was, he was constructed physically in a way that would suggest a lot of stamina and strength. No, there's no indication in scripture that Jesus died more quickly, either because he had been beaten or because he was physically weaker. Jesus died when he did because he was operating according to a divine clock. And John's report as to what happened at the moment of death helps us to see that he gave up his spirit. Now earlier, Jesus had said this about his life in John chapter 10. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. All right, two other events also help us to see Jesus' control over his dying. So next there's the fact that the soldiers did not break Jesus' leg bones. This is what we read in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. You say, so what? Well, there was actually an Old Testament law that said the following. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy 21. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is hung on a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on a tree overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as, as an inheritance. So every criminal sentenced to die under the law of God, the law of Moses, typically by stoning, was then, the body was then put up on a stake or, as it says here, hung on a tree as a symbol of divine rejection. Now the fact that the Romans executed by crucifixion rather than, say, stoning, doesn't make any difference. To be nailed to a cross was equivalent to be hung on a tree, as Paul indicates in Galatians 3 and verse 13. So Jesus died under a divine curse. That's what made it so difficult for many of these Jews to believe that Jesus could possibly be the Christ, the, the Messiah of God. How is it possible that Jesus could be that person when here he is dying a cursed death under the judgment of God? And they failed to recognize that Jesus died such a death, not because he did anything wrong, but because he was our representative. He was our substitute. He died for us. But here it is now, like three o'clock on Friday afternoon, coming back to John's Gospel. It's six o'clock that night in three hours. The special Passover Sabbath would begin. So they had to get these three bodies down and into their graves on time. Otherwise, it would ruin their entire Sabbath, Passover Sabbath celebration. So this is what they did. Look at verse 31. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
Soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the second. Now, victims of crucifixion would typically have iron spikes driven into them to hold them securely onto the cross. So the crossbar, the cross would be on the ground and the body would be placed on the cross and iron spikes would be driven not into the palm area because that would not support the weight of the person on the cross. Instead, it would be driven into the wrist areas and then the legs would be bowed and crossed and typically one spike was driven into the ankle area to secure the lower portion of the body to the cross. And then they would lift up this crossbar with a victim of crucifixion on it and drop it into a socket in the earth. And this individual now hung on a cross would have to fight all of this excruciating pain to try to push himself off of that lower spike to raise his chest cavity in order to catch another breath. And in a weakened condition after a period of time, of course, they wouldn't have the strength to do that any longer and they would die by suffocation. And so sometimes to hasten death, the soldiers would come with hammers to smash the leg bones of these victims so then, of course, they can't push themselves off of that lower spike because of the trauma and the broken bones that they now have in their legs, and they would die almost instantaneously. And so in, since, in this case, they needed to get all three of these bodies down in just less than three hours now, this is what they plan to do. Now look at verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Well, imagine that. If, they had, if Jesus had not died exactly when he did, they would have broken his legs. And friends, if they had broken Jesus' legs, we might as well close up our Bibles, turn off the lights, lock the doors, go home, because God would be shown to be a liar. Say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, notice verse 36. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, and John quotes Numbers 9, verse 12, not one of his bones will be broken. Wow. I mean, now do you see why Jesus died exactly when he did before the soldiers crushed his legs? And such supernatural control over his death is evidence that he really is the Christ of God, able to honor his every promise to care for you and bring you victory over your death. But there's another event that helps us to see Jesus' power and control over his dying, and that's the piercing of his side. Notice verse 34. Instead, that is, instead of breaking his leg bones, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What in the world does that mean, and why is it even here in the Bible? Well, I remember a few years ago preaching a sermon series on events leading up to Jesus' uh, crucifixion and following getting ready for Easter. And I decided that year to interview, do a, a video interview of a cardiologist. I contacted a Christian cardiologist, Dr. Lyle uh, Joyce, who was in charge of all cardiac care at uh, the Institute of, at, uh, there for cardiology at Abbott Northwestern. 
And so I came in with the guy carrying his video camera. We sat down in this conference room and I asked Dr. Joyce, what is the meaning of this sudden flow of blood and water from Jesus' side? Well, he explained to me, now this is my interpretation of what this medical doctor said, okay? He said something like this, that in the heart cavity after death, the heavier, thicker red corpuscles, cells, because they are heavier, separate from the watery serum part of the blood and sink to the lower part of the heart cavity. So he said the fact that Jesus' side was pierced, that, that spear going right into his heart cavity, and out comes this sudden flow of blood and water would certainly confirm the fact that Jesus was already dead. Now that's very important to John, and frankly it ought to be important to us. Why is that? Because there were conspiracy theories back then, just as there are now, that would suggest Jesus didn't even die on the cross. Maybe you're familiar with probably the most popular of these conspiracy theories called the swoon theory. It's the idea that on the cross, Jesus sort of lapsed into a coma. And, um, you know, they thought he was dead. They took his, what they presume was a lifeless body down, wrapped it in strips of cloth, mummy-like, placed it in the, in the tomb. And there we're supposed to believe that Jesus revived. Somehow he was able to get all of those wrappings off his body. And in spite of six hours on the cross, crucifixion, the previous beating, to maneuver this huge boulder that would have sealed the entrance of the tomb, push that aside so that then Jesus would be able to overcome two guards that were there and then walk seven miles to a village called Emmaus and on the way reveal himself in such a breathtaking fashion to two of his followers as to convince them there had been this mighty resurrection from the dead when according to the theory, there was no resurrection because Jesus hadn't died. I think it takes more faith to believe in the swoon theory, frankly, than it does in the biblical record. But at any rate, John encourages us to believe, no, 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 Jesus was dead. But there's another reason why he records this incident, and that's in verse 37. And as another scripture says, and now he quotes Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now remember, the piercing of Jesus' side was the opposite of what these soldiers came to do. They came to break his leg bones and those of the others, and yet they ended up fulfilling both prophecies. You see, if Jesus was still alive when those uh, soldiers showed up, the first prophecy would, would have been destroyed because they would have shattered his leg bones. And if they had shattered his leg bones, there would be no need for the second prophecy, which is the piercing of his side. So Jesus died on a divine schedule so that they would not break his leg bones and so they would pierce his side to fulfill prophecy and declare his majesty and his sovereignty over death. You say, okay, I guess that's kind of interesting, maybe, but so what? Well, as Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1850s and 1860s wrote, notice this quote, 
that our Lord's bones should remain unbroken and yet that he should be pierced seemed a very unlikely thing. But it was carried out. When next you meet with an unlikely promise from God, believe it firmly. When next you see things working contrary to the truth of God, believe God and believe nothing else. Hold on to what God has spoken, for heaven and earth shall pass away, but not one of his words shall fall to the ground. Friends, God's word can be trusted. So John records this incident, the piercing of his side, to confirm that Jesus died and to reveal that he fulfilled prophecy. May that encourage you to trust God's promises to care for you. Whatever is going on in your life, to promise to care for you. Well, then I want you to notice verse 35. One modern translation renders it this way. John says, I saw all this myself and have given an accurate report so that you also can believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be? Believe that Jesus is God's son, able to control and conquer death and fulfill his every promise to care for you. So do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus exercised control over his death and therefore that proves he's God come in the body, in the flesh? Be careful because if you say, yeah, I I guess I do believe, The implication is you need to receive him as the savior and the Lord of your life. So first of all, we see his power and control over death and his dying. Secondly, we also see his power and control over his death and his burial. I mean, it's one thing, frankly, to control your dying. It's quite another to control your burial. You and I might sit down with an attorney and work out a will and tell family members what our intentions are and all of that. But, you know, once we're dead, there isn't a whole lot we can do to make sure that people are going to carry out our wishes. But I want you to see that Jesus, while dead, controls every aspect related to his burial by acting on the hearts of two men, Joseph and Nicodemus. Let's meet each one of these guys, shall we? First of all, we meet this man, Joseph, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now let's back up a bit. There's an absolutely fascinating, I think, prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ written some 750 years before he was born in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So for the same sermon series that I referenced earlier, in which I did a video interview, I decided also to do another video interview. This one was of a man born and raised in a Jewish context who had come to faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. I wanted to know his story. So I show up again with the video guy and I asked him, tell me your story. And he said, well, one day I went to work and um, This Christian says to me, you know, you Jews, because you've rejected Jesus as the Messiah, you're all going to hell. Oh my, I thought that's not a very good way to begin a a witness, you know, I mean, that's something that we don't recommend, all right? But it worked on this occasion. It made this man from his Jewish background absolutely livid. 
And he decided, I'm going to do some studying on this and prove this Christian wrong. So he began to read all kinds of Jewish literature and all about Christian literature, making comparisons and seeing where the arguments were. And all of these Christians in their literature are referring to this prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. And he couldn't figure out what does all of this mean about this person dying on behalf of the iniquities of others and, and so forth. He decided to go and talk to his rabbi, and the rabbi didn't have a very good explanation as far as he was concerned, studied further, and ultimately came to saving faith. This is just one of the many prophecies about the coming of God's suffering servant, the Christ, that appears in Isaiah 53. Here it is in verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Now, we're not really told what the authorities intended to do with the body of Jesus. Presumably, it was to bury him along with the other two thieves. Well, that would fulfill the first part of this, wouldn't it? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But then it says, and with the rich in his death. Oh boy, now we have a problem. I mean, Jesus doesn't have any rich uncles. There aren't no wealthy disciples. How in the world is this going to be fulfilled? Well, let's watch, shall we? Matthew writes, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Well, how about that? Joseph is wealthy. Well, back in John's Gospel, we also read, Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Well, we can understand that, right? Because according to Mark's gospel, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of all the nation, one of 70 great rulers. All of this authority and power that we give to our legislative, judicial, and executive branches of our government, these 70 men had, all of that authority but now Jesus, though dead, works on the heart of this man, Joseph, by the Holy Spirit to secure the body of Christ. I mean, if this guy is a coward when Jesus is alive, why in the world would he suddenly become courageous now that Jesus is dead? And if all the disciples have fled the scene, why would this man show up, you know, out of the blue, it seems, and demonstrate all of this courage. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel that Joseph went to Pilate and boldly, it says, boldly asked for Jesus' body. Wow, what in the world happened? Well, Joseph counted the cost. Joseph decided to stand up for Jesus and not be controlled by his fears, not be controlled by what other people would have thought of him, of, uh, you know, the lost potentially in his image or his reputation. Jesus is going to be number one in the life of this influential, wealthy man. I mean, what a model he is for you and for me to take our stand courageously for Christ in the workplace, at school, in the various environments in which he places us. And so Jesus, though dead physically, works on the heart of this man, Joseph, and Joseph becomes God's instrument to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus' burial in the grave of a rich man. All right, there's one other man we need to meet. His name is Nicodemus. By the way, he's another secret follower. Wow, all these closet Christians are coming out in the open. Verse 39, 
Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And so on that occasion, Jesus tells this man also of influence and wealth, very religious by the way, that he needed to be born from above spiritually in order to enter heaven at death. Well, apparently he had become a believer because here we read verse 39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. By the way, that not only shows this man's wealth to be able to afford that much of spices, but also he believed Jesus to be a king because this would be the amount that would be used to bury a king. So here comes Nicodemus, also a member of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And with Joseph, you have two men who have now counted the cost, willing to be rejected by society, by friends, whatever, to take their stand for Christ. All right, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. All right, now verses 41 and 42. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Well, imagine that. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, that is Friday, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid it there. I mean, the tomb had to be right there. It was like three miles away. There's no way that they're going to transport the body of Jesus that distance and get it ready for burial in time for six o'clock when that starts the great Sabbath celebration. Friends, it's one thing to be able to control your time. It's another thing to be able to control your burial. And here we see Jesus doing both of those things. So what's the significance of all of this for you and for me today? Two very important conclusions. Here's the first. To live without faith in Jesus would be for you to deny biblical evidence, okay? To live without faith in Jesus is to deny biblical evidence. At the time of Jesus' death, you know it's doubtful that these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, realized that the action of the soldier piercing Jesus' side instead of breaking his legs, that all of this fulfilled scripture. It's unlikely at the time of Jesus' death that they understood that his being buried in the tomb of a rich man fulfilled prophecy as well, probably coming to an understanding of these things later after Jesus' resurrection. And yet in the presence of confirming evidence, they nevertheless boldly identify themselves with Christ. You have evidence. You have the prophecy of the Old Testament, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they have pierced. You have the prophecy about being identified in the tomb of, a, of wicked men, but being buried in that of a rich man, and how Jesus orchestrated all of this. In short, all that's needed for you to believe in terms of evidence you have. So do you, will you, will you believe? Believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be and commit your life to him as your leader and Lord. To live without faith in Jesus is for you to deny biblical evidence. Here's the second great conclusion. 
To die with faith in Jesus is to face a certain future. So Jesus not only directed the events surrounding his own death and burial, but promises to do the same for you. So that scripture can say to us to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So when physical death occurs and there's that separation of soul from the body, that moment, scripture says, is for you to enter in the very presence of Christ. Elsewhere it says, not even death can separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So young person, are you scared to death of death? Older adult, is it the surprise element of it, maybe the finality of it, or, you know, what is it that concerns you as you think about someday you, your own passing? Jesus, the Lord of death, assures you that every detail of your life, including your death, is under his sovereign loving care. So to live without faith in Jesus is to deny evidence, and to die with faith in Jesus is to face a certain future. If you're following Jesus in the shadows, in secret, when it's safe and comfortable and convenient for you, I think it's time for you, like Nicodemus and Joseph, to come out into the open and public, publicly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. And if you already confess him like these men, may you be encouraged because you face a future with absolute certainty and security. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful this morning for a savior who suffered for us. And so we join with believers throughout the centuries, the ages to confess that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried for us, because of our sin is our, our substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Thank you for your crucifixion and for your willingness to suffer in our place, for the fulfillment of prophecy regarding your death and your burial. Lord, we look forward to Easter, to coming together in order to celebrate your resurrection, but even now, we want you to know that we love you and we're so grateful for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.